The ancient Greek philosopher Socrates once wrote, no man has the right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training. It is a shame for a man to go through life without finding the true strength he is capable of. And I love that quote. It's actually one of my favorite quotes, and I'm super excited. Today, I'm here with Dr. Aaron Horschig of Squat University, also a doctor of physical therapy, also known as Squat Master Flex. Super excited to have you here, man. Been following you for quite some time, definitely since you started the page. But I appreciate it's been it. Cool to see, it's been cool to see how you've blown up and how you've taken things. And you're not just about squats, but yeah. you're really about you know rehab overall and empowering athletes and even just anybody you know the right exercises to the right stretches to do and to be informed so i really appreciate you're really it. doing great really doing some great stuff thank you thank you so i'm curious squats are obviously like super you know probably something that's super passionate for mm -hmm. you how did you get started with physical therapy and squat university did you have like some injuries in the past oh man i've had every injury under the sun so um i guess it all really squat university all stemmed from my love of strength and conditioning and weightlifting first before i ever became a physical therapist um, growing up, I mean, I played your traditional sports, baseball, football, basketball. And then when I got into, I went to a small school up in Northeastern Missouri called Truman State University. And they had a weightlifting team, an Olympic weightlifting team. And up until that time, I had done your traditional cleans, bench, squat, deadlift type of thing in high school preparing for football. But I had never competed in weightlifting. And by the time I got to college, I really wanted to play on the baseball team and I ended up trying to walk on. And it was a blessing in disguise. I ended up hurting my elbow during tryouts, not making the team. And then the very next week, found the Olympic weightlifting team. There was a thing called groups on, on uh, Facebook back in the day. Well, this is when Facebook first started. So uh, this is 2005. And uh, had a, a meeting for the Iron Dogs Olympic weightlifting team and just fell in love with it. I was like, wait, you're telling me that you guys do clean and jerks and snatches. You guys work out all week long and then that's what you compete in? couple times a year I was like that sounds amazing so I instantly fell in love with it I've always been a huge weight room nerd I've been the person that's you know first one in last one out my whole life I just enjoy working out and I sort of just combined that love of the weight room and competing in Olympic weightlifting which I did for over 11 years and then transformed that into sort of the strength and conditioning physical therapy mindset once I got into grad school and then uh, into my career as a physical therapist. I worked out in Kansas City for over eight years um, at a place called Boost Physical Therapy and Sports Performance. And then recently, uh, my wife and I decided to move back to St. Louis and taking my practice out here. Um, basically, Squat University was something that sort of was molded out of that, again, desire to work with the strength athlete, any single person that walks into the weight room be it a professional weightlifter or, you know, a high schooler that just enjoys working out or grandma that wants to get more fit. I mean, anyone that walks into the weight room is my audience. And there was this deja vu like scenario that just kept on coming up time and time again as a physical therapist screening people that would come to me for any type of injury, back pain, knee pain, hip pain. And during our interview, you know, you, as you know, you have to be a detective and try to solve what's the problem. Why are they here? Obviously, if you have a torn ACL patient, we know how they're there, you know, but when anyone comes in without that, you know, it's just some aches and pains. You really have to be a detective and find out why is that problem there. And it just kept on coming up time and time again. Like I said, this deja vu like scenario where I would ask the person, take their shoes off and just perform a basic looking squat. And I'm talking, I'm getting your high school, you know, 
great quarterback. I'm getting college volleyball player. I'm getting grandpa, you know, who hurt his knee walking around the yard. I'm seeing all these spectrums of athletes. And yet the one thing that's constant across all of them is that they could not perform a basic looking bodyweight squat without weightlifting shoes on, especially my, my crossfitters and my weightlifters. And it sort of dawned on me that as a society, we have completely conceptually rearranged our athletic priorities to think that the squat is first and foremost an exercise. And we sort of forget that it's a movement first. And in doing so, I think we've lost a very fundamental building block in our movement repertoire. You know, um, Gray Cook uh, wrote a, a lot of really, really good work in his book, Movement. Obviously, the FMS was one thing that came out of that. But uh, the idea that movement quality sets the foundation for our bodies physically to perform strength, speed, power, and then skill on top of is something that runs true and I have found to be very true in all athletes. And this message of the broken squat pattern is just something I kept continuously seeing. And it sort of dawned on me. I was like, I need to start outreaching to the world and try to give my ideas and what I've learned over the time, things that I've been told and things that I've learned from those much smarter than me beforehand, and try to outreach in ways that I think I can do best and speak to that athleting coach in that weight room talk you know, not speak down to them in the doctor speak, I like to call it, and just help people understand that when we can perform and learn to perform a basic squat and clean up problems in mobility and stability and get that squat movement first, then it's time to lift heavy ass weights. And when you can sort of rearrange those, those priorities and get movement down first, then it allows you, no matter what your athletic aspirations are, to really succeed to your greatest potential. And really that's where Squat University uh, was formed out of, and it's been something I've been doing ever since, uh, since 2015. And that was a lot there, but <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely you came into my next question. I was going to ask, you know, why it's, it's beneficial for, you know, to do squats on a daily basis. But before we get there, mm -hmm. like, it, it's so true. Like what derailed me from my powerlifting career was, you know, I, I had a lot of strength coming from just playing, you know, running in sports and I could do two plates right away, but I didn't really focus on, you know, I wasn't able to body weight squat. You're right. Cause I, I just had, I, at first I blamed my leverages or my stiff ankles, but I was doing, you know, that West side style. And I was, you know, I was putting up good weights, but my knees were aching. And it's really cool that like, now that you're starting to put it out there, people are starting to realize that the movement first approach is really, you know, the only way to do it. Whereas like, I've had a lot of friends, then I met at the gym who were powerlifters who would, you know, didn't even know what mobility was. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, I saw an athlete and I made a, a mini documentary on YouTube. It's called Josiah story. And he's just like your classic powerlifter. I mean, he had this horrible, horrible injury and on our, our way back during the rehabilitation phase, you know, I'd be like, Hey, we're going to do a little foam rolling or we're going to do, you know, this mobility drill. And he's like, what? that small little thing. And then he realized how impactful it was to his life and to the way in which he was moving. And oftentimes we think that strength is the end all be all. But we don't understand that if you're not moving well first, that strength that you have is only going to take you so far. Yeah. So what are some of the other benefits of, you know, why would someone want to, besides the squat being a movement, like why should someone want to work on it on a daily basis and why should they strive to, or, you know, perfecting what a good squat looks like for them? 
Yeah. I, I think it all comes back to saying that the squat is sort of uh, the fundamental, one of the fundamental movement pillars in our ability uh, sure. to just, you know, move throughout the day. If you think about it, take, take the weight room completely out of it. Um, when you look at a baby and the way in which they're moving, getting up and down off the ground, you know, they're moving to a squat and then standing back up. Um, and too often as we get older, we just see these people that are like bending over all the time. They forgot how to squat down to pick something off the ground. And then we wonder why our risk of back injury is so high as we age. Now, yes, a hip hinge great and we have to be able to deadlift. But if you're only doing that and you're never being able to squat, you don't have that ability, that movement repertoire. You know, I think it really sets you up for being limited in what your body's capable of doing. Um, it's one of those things that you should have it, you know, possible to perform. It should be something you can do. We look at these third world countries where people sit in a, in a deep squat just as a resting position. Uh, my co-author in my book, The Squat Bible, Kevin Santana, his parents are from Laos. And he would tell me that sometimes when his mother would make uh, prepare a meal, she would just be sitting in a deep squat and just do so for 30 minutes, 40 wow. minutes. And, you know, we, we often think we're like, oh, my gosh, 30 minutes. I mean, you ask someone nowadays, hey, can you sit in a deep squat? They're like, oh, I can do that. I'm like, how long can you do that for? And I mean, minute, maybe two minutes. And then they're just like done for. And we wonder why we have such chronic issues in our society. And it's because we often don't use our bodies as they were designed. We conform ourselves to limited motion and believe that because we go to Planet Fitness and get on an exercise bike or an elliptical and get a good sweat and do some crunches, that we're actually used as it was designed. Yeah, I think that's big, especially to part of the reason, you know, I started Despound Therapy was because people exactly, they're losing their functional movement patterns. They're sitting all day. They can't bend over. They can't do anything. And it's just like, you know, let's just get you back to the basics and let's just slow down a little bit. And I've slowly over time started to be able to, you know, educate people why those little things are so important. But it's like, even yeah. myself, like, I don't think I could sit more than five minutes in a squat. It's definitely like, I, I think the, the big thing here for people listening is to just, you know, get started with something instead of trying to, you know, get to 30 minutes right away. Like one thing I like to do in the morning is I have like a little yoga wedge. I sit on that. So I get an extra little calf stretch, you know, try to kind of time it usually two minutes to four minutes, but you just try to open that up in the mornings. That's something yeah. yeah. I think, you know, uh, the ability to just sort of take it piece by piece. You know, we can't say, hey, start off with a 10-minute squat. You have someone that maybe has never been able to sit down in a deep squat before. We have to tailor it to the person. So for that person, it may be, hey, I want you to grab on to the edge of a rig. Or if you're at home, you know, a su support beam in your basement. And just try to work yourself down. Hold yourself up a little bit. Give yourself a little balance assistance. And just squat as deep as you can. Try 20 seconds at the start. And just sort of progressively go from there. Maybe try to add five seconds every single day or every single week. And then try to go just a little bit deeper. The thing is having patience whenever you're trying to improve any type of physical quality. We often just want to do corrective exercises and don't realize that sometimes it's just being in that position that can make the greatest impact. So what do you do? Like I said, grab a plate, grab onto a rig or a rack or something like that and just spend time in that deep squat and start off maybe set a goal for yourself at 20 seconds. Squat as deep as you can and then eventually as you add a little bit of time, five seconds a day, five seconds a week, you know, slowly over time acclimate your body to that deep squat position and you're going to notice huge changes and eventually you'll be able to drop that plate or let go of that rig a little bit and you're going to feel a little bit more in balance. 
you know, and this is something that may take weeks and months, but the, the more persistent you are and the more consistent you are with maintaining that schedule of, of doing that and, you know, finding 10 minutes a day total, I think you're really going to see some big changes in the long run. Man, it's so cool, dude. I get jealous when I see little kids just sitting in a squat. <laughs> even if I just see my dog sitting with his legs, and I'm like, damn, how does he do that? But it's so true. Like, even for me, like, if I were to just, like, I find it, it's a, like, it's so easy for them. They can sit over, they can play, and they can have their spine, you know, still, you know, pretty upright. Where for me, you know, after, you know, that three-minute mark, my upper back starts burning like crazy. And it's like, get out of there, get out of there. And it's just crazy how our body is just like not accustomed to this primal movement anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that legit, if you don't use it, you lose it. Now you'll get some people on one end of that spectrum that'll say, they'll come up with the argument. Well, babies have completely different bone structures and their head to torso ratio is completely different and blah, 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 blah. Look, we're not saying you're going to squat exactly like a baby because obviously our bodies change as we get older. There's different bone structures. Our bodies are maybe, the, the bones themselves are less malleable. Um, there's many different things that separate us from a baby's structure, but it's the ability to squat and feel extremely comfortable in that bottom position because here's where that entire argument gets thrown out. All you have to do is go to a third world country and just watch people rest at the bus stop in the bottom of a deep squat for five minutes. They're not a baby anymore. All of a sudden, that entire argument is blown to pieces. So yes, human adults can still have the ability to squat like a baby, even though it may not look the exact same. It's the ease at which someone should be able to perform a deep squat. And it's something that obviously over time, a lot of people lose because if you don't use it, you will lose it. You will lose that ability. You will lose mobility in very key crucial areas that it's going to take time. And some people, depending on how long it's been since you've ever used it, it may not be something that you'll ever fully recover, but it's something that we can always improve upon. Because no matter what your bone structure says, if you've got, you know, horrible, horrible retroversion or antiversion, you know, if you've got very, very deep hip sockets, you know, those are, those are things that we're unable to physically change sort of surgery, you know, but it's something that we can still always expand upon where we are currently at, because no matter who you are, you've probably not made up all of your mobility restrictions. Do you feel there's like a limit to where you can't physically improve your mobility further to, you know, improve your squat? Cause at least for me, just to give an example, like if I had just like an, a kettlebell offsetting me, I could go, you know, ATG with my back straight, but mm -hmm. I find it with my body weight, you know, I can't get as deep. Whereas, you know, I've been working on my ankle mobility for years and it's just kind of at like a standstill. I've tried, you know, the banded mobilization is just, you know, end range kind of grade two mobilization, just kind of doing ankle pumps. And I've tried, you know, the pails and rails, but is there a point where you're just like, okay, you know, this is where my body weight's going to be, or is there always going to be a way for someone to get, you know, that full depth position? That's a great question. So here's what I'd say. A large majority of people have probably never come close to reaching what their body is capable of mobility wise. Yes. We need to take into account anatomy and the changes that occur over time, especially your injury history. If you've had a crazy history of injury, let's say to your ankles, there may be only so much mobility we're going to be able to make up with corrective exercises. Um, but even taking into account mobility, 
um, anatomy, injury history, I don't believe most people have really hit their end range of what is possible with mobility work. Now, in saying that, talking about the deep squat, there's much more we need to consider than just corrective exercise at improving that deep squat position. For example, when we look at the foot and ankle, we have this interplay of two different ideas. We have a mobile ankle sitting on top of a stable foot. Now, if that foot is not as stable as it should be, no amount of mobility work you do at the ankle will ever take hold and allow yourself to fully invest in what is possible at that ankle mobility. Here's what I mean. A lot of times we wear horrible shoes, horrible shoes. And I would recommend a lot of people um, look up Dr. Ray McClanahan and his work. Uh, we just did a podcast um, on the Squat University podcast called Why Your Shoes Suck. And in it, he talks about um, Dr. Rossi, who was a, a podiatrist back in the day that was talking about foot health, natural foot health, in a way that the podiatry profession basically completely looked the other way. Because when people have foot problems, what do they do? They want to build up the foot by giving you uh, some foot support. You have an install, you have a very stable shoe. Let's maybe give you a little bit more stability on this side, or let's wedge it up a little bit this way. And no one really looks at the way in which the foot should naturally be. You look at a baby's foot, the big toes, all the toes are going to splay out much more than the rest of the foot. It's the widest part of the foot. But if you hold up 90% of people's feet today and look at them, the way in which we have been using our shoes for such a long time smashes those toes together. I don't have a shoe right next to me or I'd show you. But because the toes are smashed together, because it is a fashion-driven uh, shoe um, profession, basically, even like Nike, Adidas, all that, um, it has affected the way our foot mechanics have uh, evolved. And I think because of that, we have decreased a lot of our ability to use our ankle as it was designed. So it's not until we get out of our shoes and reclaim our natural foot stability and the natural foot structure that we should have that a lot of times people's ankle mobility finally improves. And they've been hammering their head time and time again, trying to find more ankle mobility by doing banded joint mobilization, things like that, hitting that ankle every single day and they never think about the foot directly underneath it. And when they improve that foot stability, get out of those horrible shoes that just pinch your foot together and smash your foot into an unnatural position, that's when they're finally able to reclaim what their body was meant to be able to move like. It's really good to hear your opinion on that because previously on the podcast, I've had a, a running physiotherapist give her stance more talking about, you know, finding the right shoe for your, your drop height and your heel height, etc. And then I've also had a foot doctor saying, and they're more towards the side of, you know, barefoot isn't better. It's just getting a shoe that's, you know, personalized to the individual. But it's really cool to hear your stance on the more minimalist because that's kind of mm -hmm. where I tend to lean as well. Because even when I got started working out almost 10 years ago, I just thought the Vibram Five Fingers were cool, so I started with those shoes. And then I think I've had every single pair of minimalist shoe New Balance has ever made just because I love their shoes. And they have wide toe boxes. And then I have the Vivos too. But I think it, it it's really cool to just kind of like take that that step back and really look at what you're doing with your everyday lifestyles and habits. Because, you yeah. know, those, you know, 12, 16 hours you're wearing shoes, you're on your feet, they're going to be more than any time you could have spent stretching your calves. Huge. It's huge. And I think... 
you know, when you look at podiatry and even the way we're taught in physical therapy school, um, when most people are talking about shoe prescription, it's literally based on what can I do to fit the person? What can I do to fix their symptoms rather than just take a step back and look at how should they be moving? How can I allow this person to move a little bit more naturally? Take that almost holistic approach. And that's the same way that we work with every other part of the body. So why not with our footwear? You know, if someone comes to me with knee pain, I'm going to ask them to squat. I'm going to ask them to perform a single leg squat. I'm going to look at their ankle mobility, their hip mobility, their stability, have them balance and perform a squat and work on their control. You know, it's a holistic approach, getting them to move as their body was designed, having full control over that movement. And if they come to me with a foot issue and they're a runner, maybe, why is my first jump to say, hey, let me get a different shoe to give you more support, to prop your foot up a little bit more, instead of looking at, well, how is your foot working right now? Let me look at your foot stability. How has your foot adapted over time to the type of shoes you're using? And is that the natural way in which your body was designed? You know, we have so many people that take that type of approach to physical therapy and say, well, let me do this to you. Let me kinesio tape your knee. Let me do dry needling here. Let me do this stuff to you. Instead of teaching that person how to use their body the way it was designed to let them fix themselves. Now, in saying that, if I have a runner that's been running in a very, very thick sole shoe for a long time, the last thing I want to do is say, hey, this is a horrible shoe. Boom, running a barefoot shoe. Because that's a huge jump from what they've been doing. That'd be me like saying someone that, uh, you know, has uh, squatted only on two legs their entire life to just all of a sudden throw them in a class or a workout, like a CrossFit type workout and say, boom, you're doing pistol squats. They don't know how to do pistol squats. They don't have that capability to perform that movement without falling over. They don't have the coordination. So <clears throat> with anything, there's progression. And in someone that's a runner that's been in a very thick social for a long time, Obviously, we want to get them to, for most people, I would say, more of that holistic, natural approach. And it's got to be a graded exposure because if you put the, someone in too quick to something their body's not prepared for, you're going to find a lot of injury that way as well. It's really interesting how like the footwear plays such a big role in it. I think it's partially due to, in society, everyone wants that quick fix. I know like I when I started powerlifting, I was like, oh, these shoes are so cool. So I tried friends, you know. Uh, Addy powers at the gym then I got a pair and you know I was squatting great and I could lift a bit more but man like my warm-ups were just with the bar like I couldn't even get down it's crazy to like kind of look back at that and and just see like how much change like that used to be the craze like everyone was all about those shoes and now it's all about that switch towards the barefoot is actually I have a funny story I got my vivos at the vivo store in Vienna Austria two summers mm. ago and I decided that I was just going to wear them that day right at the store on the sidewalk. Man, I, my feet were in so much pain the next day. My body's like, what the heck? Like, it wasn't used to that complete drop. I was wearing more like a, a New Balance Minimalist, which is like half a millimeter. And yeah. man, I was in so much pain. I was like crying just getting back to the hospital. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first time I started wearing uh, correct toes which is something that Dr. Ray McClanahan made. It's a orthotic that allows your toes to naturally splay out like they should. I mean, it was definitely, uh, you know, the next couple of days, my feet were a little sore. So that's why you're supposed to ease into them a little bit more. So I know having posture is a lot like having good form in the gym. And I know you talk about how form is like 
something we should consider in everyday activities, just like you mentioned, we should be proficient in the squat and the hinge. Now I'm curious, can you discuss, you know, how the two are related and can working on your squat improve your posture as a byproduct of moving better? Yeah, I think the squat allows you to come to grips with different qualities that allow for good posture. Now, when we say good posture, obviously there's a range. There's no one size fits all. Right. And the big thing I try to teach every single person that has questions on posture is that posture is not static. Yes, when you look through a textbook, they just show someone with that plumb line standing straight up and down and they'll say, this is good posture. Well, posture is not only the way in which you're moving, sitting or uh, sitting or standing, but it's also the way in which you're moving in between different postures or in di different positions. And with a squat, what do you have to have? You have to have good core stability. You have to have your shoulders in a good position. Uh, you have to have good pelvic control. We don't want to be tipped too far forward or too far back, uh, you know, tipping our pelvis underneath our body. We're maintaining a neutral spine. We're allowing the different qualities that carry over into what that ideal posture is um, to really be strengthened. You know, and I think that's a big thing that a lot of people uh, need to understand when it comes to the weight room, no matter what your athletic goals are or aspirations, the weight room is a way in which you can strengthen and build capacity for posture. Now, here's an example. Um, you know, your dad that wants to go out and do some yard work and, you know, get a bunch of uh, rocks out of the yard and, you know, mow the lawn and do a bunch of stuff like that. That's a lot of different low load movements, but the better capacity they have built for maintaining a neutral spine, for uh, being able to maintain hip alignment and core control, um, that's going to give them better resiliency when they do get out of specific postures. Because um, I don't think there's such a thing as you know, you'll, you'll see a lot of that black and white, good posture versus bad posture. And what it really is, is understanding what the individual needs and how they're maintaining and moving in and out of that. Uh, for example, the rounded back uh, sort of debate. You'll see a lot of people that'll say spinal flexion is horrible because they've uh, probably misread a lot of Stuart McGill's work. Stuart McGill has never said that spinal flexion is bad. He has said that spinal flexion under load is the mechanism that eventually leads to a lot of back injuries, such as the disc bulge. But spinal flexion itself can be a very good thing. You should have the ability under low load to move your back in and out of a flexed posture. So if you're sitting and just relaxing, low load, you know, with your back a little curved, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. Now, if you sit like that for 10 hours during the day, that may be something that's bad for some people, sure. So it's not necessarily a pure black or white situation yes or no, but it's got to be something that we have to have a little bit more context to and understanding if there's load to it and uh, how that really uh, correlates to that person's resiliency to injury. Yeah, for sure. And I think another big thing of it too is like, just like you said before, having the capacity for those demands, like for example, like, like, like I rather someone be able to, you know, ex expose themselves to full range of motion, you know, good hip control, good squat, you know, good thoracic extension, good overhead shoulder mobility. And, you know, I wouldn't mind if they slouched a little bit at, at, and take, took a little rest. Like I, I, I do that a lot. Like right now, you know, I'm sitting in my court chair, but I'm allowing myself to just slouch a little bit. But you also notice if you're watching this 
on on YouTube, I'm actually moving quite a bit while I'm sitting because it's not just that one position. But I think we should just, you know, don't think because it, it can actually be, you know, your back your muscles are always working. But if you slouch a bit and then it, that's OK, that's good. But you have the ability to pull yourself out of it and hold that comfortably. So it, yeah. it's it's really great that you shine some light on that, because I've heard some things, too, from some professors at my physiotherapy school like that may or not be correct. They're saying, you know, if you're not in that position all day long, every anytime you slouch is going to quote unquote cause some micro trauma. But really, what is that? Like uh, the yeah. body is strong and the body's capable. Like I, I'm sure like if you, the micro trauma is more when you have those loaded positions. Yeah. And it, that's the big thing is understanding load because you should be able to flex your spine. You should be able to extend your spine. But your spine flexing and moving under load, not moment, but movement, that completely changes the game. There's a lot of research that shows that spinal flexion, movement, plus load, so you have power generated at the spine, uh, when power is high, injury occurs. So this is a, a really interesting uh, topic. If you look through uh, back mechanic, or it really goes into it, uh, one of uh, other uh, Dr. Stuart McGill's books, where he talks about uh, how power is really something that spines don't like. So if you have uh, power is a, a combination of your uh, load and your speed. So take, for example, uh, a golf, Tiger Woods swinging a golf club. You have a lot of speed but you have very low load. He's only carrying you know, a very, very, very light golf club. So in doing so, that's why you're able to see people golfing well into their 80s and 90s and have fairly good backs, right? But if that same person tried to swing a 40-pound golf club, not only do you have a lot of speed, but you're also uh, trying to move a lot of load. So in turn, you're having a lot of power generated comparatively at the spine. That's when you can see a lot of back injuries arise when you're trying to move the spine with a lot of load. So take that and take it over to a, uh, a power lifter. Trying to deadlift and the back remains neutral. You can lift a lot of weight. And if the back remains in that braced position and moves about the hips, the resiliency of the spine is very high because the power is not very low or is, is not very high. Then all of a sudden, if you take that same power lifter in their back rounds, so we have movement, we have velocity at the spine, and you pair it with load. Now all of a sudden your power is elevated and your risk for injury goes up. So that's something that I think a lot of people could, lean, uh, could tend to benefit from understanding is that it's not yes or no. I mean, you look at a lot of yogis, you know, they're able to move their spine like crazy, and yet are they having a lot of back pain? But if you were able to move that spine and then try to lift weight, that's not a good combination. So is there some sort of fine line? Obviously, you like you, you see professional powerlifters who will will round the upper back, but they'll keep the lower back a little bit, you know, straighter versus, you know, like those yogis who can do hollow backs. Is there like a fine line between being, you know, functional and something that's going to injure you? I think it's something that you're going to have this continuum. And it's sort of where you're at on that continuum. I've, I've worked with a lot of very, very strong powerlifters that can't really bend their spine much anymore. And it's because their spine has adapted to the loads that they're placed on them. And then you get to the same position where you get someone who's extremely flexible and their spine and their core, their body has not adapted to being able to maintain capacity and maintain load without rounding. So um, you sort of have this long continuum and it's, everyone's going to be a little bit different. 
the way I've heard it explained is that people's spines are like branches to a tree. And you'll see some people whose, whose spines are very bendy. You can bend them all day long and they're not going to snap. And you get some people whose spines are like uh, more of a withered branch and you can bend them a couple of times and boom, they're going to start breaking open a little bit. So everyone's a little bit different. Um, so there's no one size fits all again for saying there's X amount of bends that a spine will tolerate before it breaks or X amount of bends a spine will tolerate before a herniation occurs. That's, that's not true because everyone's spine's a little bit different, but the mechanism for how a disc bulge occurs is spinal load plus movement. And over time, that's what builds the increased risk. So it's something that we just have to understand the mechanism and then sort of take it person by person. Because the last thing we want to do is say, well, look at this elite powerlifter. Their back rounds and moves while they lift and they're not injured. Well, that's the N of one. You know, you have to look at every single person that's been deadlifting for a long time. You have to take into account a lot of different people and, and see the injury resiliency rates because they're not very high. So how do you feel of the, some of those like corrective exercises where they are, you know, conditioning an individual to be loaded under flexion, such as, you know, a Jefferson curl or other things like that, where they're training that with low loads. Is that something that can be used to, you know, like, like what actually occurs in the body that allows that, that resiliency capacity to build up? I personally am not a fan of Jefferson curls. And here's the reason. I don't believe that if we're trying to build resiliency, and the capacity to not move the spine under load. I don't want to teach that person with a corrective exercise to round the spine under load. So that would be an exercise that's sort of counterintuitive to the point we're trying to make. I think if your goal is to try to build that capacity to not move the spine under heavy load, we should do exercises that try to limit that. So uh, we should do isometric exercises. I mean, the McGill Big Three are going to be sort of your baseline fundamentals, but really building off of that capacity or that idea, you know, any type of an isometric, whether that is a plank, whether that's a farmer walk, a suitcase carry, an offset walk where you have a barbell on your back and there's weight hanging off of just one side, uh, an RDL, a bent over row, anything like that technically is a core stability drill with the emphasis that we're bracing our core and limiting spinal movement. So yeah, I'm definitely not in the camp that if we want to improve resiliency to injury during a deadlift, that we should try to allow the back to round under load. Because I think our goal should always be to limit spinal movement if we're trying to lift big weight and to move about the hips. Yeah, I think one reason why a lot of people are so like up on that exercise is because they're taking something from traditionally is a gymnastics movement and they're trying to throw it into weightlifting when those are completely different sports. I think that's when you try to, you start to get a little bit of discrepancy and things cannot, I guess, cause you're not working towards the specific demands that are being imposed that can cause. Exactly. exactly. And here's the thing too, is I've spoken with physical therapist, Dave Tilly, who's uh, um, on the East coast and he's huge into uh, gymnastics. He's a coach himself, physical therapist and work with many elite gymnasts. And I asked him about the, the Jefferson curl. And he's like, yeah, I've never seen that before. So he, <laughs> I, I think people also get this idea that it's from the world of gymnastics. Yet when I ask someone who's in the world of gymnastics, he's like, I've never heard that before. So yes, in the world of gymnastics, they are doing exercises that round the spine, that bend. We're doing curls and different planks and, and, and things that round the spine. But again, they're under very low load. 
just the same way that they do different movements like a Superman or a back extension. They're doing a lot of different things that improve their ability to extend in full body from thoracic spine to, uh, to low back to hips. They're working on that perfect extension. I wouldn't have a weightlifter do that exact same thing because yes, while there's a little bit of extension in weightlifting, you watch a clean or a jerk being performed. There's a, a little bit of slight extension in the lumbar spine to keep that braced uh, upright chest position, but it's not moving into more and more extension. And if we find that, you know, like you said, the specificity of the movement, if we're loading and then moving the spine, that's when eventually injury can occur. Now we looked back, uh, if you look back at the injury risk ratios from a long time ago, back in the early 1950s and 60s, there was three different movements in weightlifting competitions. You had the clean and jerk, you had the snatch, and then you had the clean and press. Now at that time, there was research done on a number of weightlifters, and they found that the risk of a spondy type injury to the lumbar spine was like 17% of the athletes that were x-rayed in this small uh, study that was done. 17% of them had a spondy. Now, the reason why it was so high is because during a clean and press movement, they would shoulder the weight, and then they were not allowed to bend their knees. So what they would do is lean back and press that barbell overhead, and they would get a lot of spinal extension in order to press the barbell overhead. And this is spinal extension movement. So now all of a sudden, you're moving into a range, which should be capable for a lot of people, spinal extension. Again, it's not a bad thing if under low load. But not only are they moving into spinal extension, but they're trying to press tremendous weight overhead. And again, just like flexion of the spine plus load is the mechanism that leads to a disc bulge, extension under load movement is something that can lead to an issue like a spondy uh, type injury to the spine. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And one of the biggest struggles I had was when I started powerlifting is when I just came off my, you know, a few years training, you know, calisthenics and gymnastics. Like I felt like my, I kept getting injured was because my goals kind of, kind of didn't really coincide. Like I was still working on, you know, my back bends, my hollow backs while also wanting to work on my deadlifts. I find too, like, especially with powerlifting, you just want to, you know, progress in every single lift. And the same with calisthenics, you want to like master every single skill at, at every t at the same time. And I find like, so what are some tips you have to kind of make it so you can cross train, whether with it be like powerlifting or weightlifting, getting some body weight training in, but find that right balance so you can stay healthy? Yeah, I mean, that's tough. I mean, it, it's all dependent on your goals. And at the end of the day, technique is going to be key in understanding that what you're doing, um, it's how you're doing it that's gonna make all the difference. So um, if you're trying to do, cause that's basically CrossFit is trying to blend all of these different ideologies together with strength training and gymnastics work. Um, and understanding the amount of load that you're doing is key. You know, if you're doing some gymnastics work, you know, how much load are you doing? Because a ton of load in gymnastics work at the same time doing a ton of load powerlifting wise, strength wise, is probably not going to mesh well for your body. So being able to have seasons, you know, or times, periodization uh, can be very, very helpful, I think, for an athlete. And understanding that certain skills um, and qualities that you're trying to work on have a time and a place. And if you're spending a little bit more time on this, maybe we're cutting back a little bit on this so that we can allow ourselves to adapt to what we're trying to do, make improvements, but still keep ourselves uh, resilient to injury.
Yeah, it's a good point too. Like uh, that's one thing that helped me out the most was really periodizing periods when I, you know, I would, you know, like last year, for example, I did primarily weightlifting because I wanted to put on some muscle. So when then I went back to, you know, bodyweight training, I would have a little bit more, you know, power, a little bit more strength. And I find that actually worked out really well for me. So I think the key is for people is to just, you know, focus on one goal at a time and take things slow and don't try to, you know, be a jack of all trades if you're not an athlete. Just kind of, just kind of, especially if you're working at a desk, like just try to go for, for health instead of trying to beat up your body. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to feel good. Um, and you, you're not going to be doing yourself any good if you're always pushing yourself to getting injured. So what are some ways you implement the movement first approach when it comes to strength training with your patients? I know you talked about a lot on your, on your page, like movement performance and skill, but what are some ways you, I guess, assess their movement patterns and then look at um, improving them? Yeah. So movement assessment is key because that's the big thing is that you could have 10 people lined up all that have poor looking squats, issues with knee cave, feet spinning out, back rounding, but they all could be due to very different reasons. So the assessment is key. Now, what you're doing during that assessment, you know, you have to have different tools in your toolbox. So there's no right or wrong, but I found that there's a number of different tools that I share constantly for free on all different platforms that have just been something that I find to be very helpful. And the best way to find out whether or not that assessment is useful at all is just a very simple test and retest. So for example, uh, you have someone that has a difficult time being able to get into a deep squat. So they're unable to squat down, have that knee over toe translation. Well, obviously, ankle mobility is a huge hindrance to that. If you can't allow that knee to go over your toes, it's often an ankle issue, and you're not going to be able to set your hips as deep as possible and keep your chest upright. So we do a simple five-inch test. And for any physical therapist out there that's trying to find basically 30 to 35 degrees of closed-chain dorsiflexion, so you just put that foot about five inches from the wall, drive your knee directly over your toe and see if you can touch the knee to the wall without your heel popping up. If you can't, yes or no, find out if you can't, is there any pinch or a block sensation in the front side of the ankle? And someone who has a joint restriction where that uh, tibia and talus aren't moving as they should, you're going to feel that tightness, a block in the front side of the ankle. And this is especially true for someone who's had maybe a history of ankle sprains in the past. So something that's been very helpful for that is doing a banded joint mobilization. Now, the thing that's got to be done for banded joint mobilization is make sure that that band is on top of the talus, on the top of the foot, pulling down. Too often I see people put that band on the top of the, or on the very bottom part of their shin. So it's pulling back basically on their tibia, which isn't doing anything to help with normal joint mechanics and the way in which the ankle actually moves. Um, but a banded joint mobilization, do 15 of them. And then retest, did you make any improvement? Yes or no. If you did, that's going to show you that that drill was effective at improving your ankle mobility and trying to elicit the changes we're trying to find. So you get up, you do a squat again, did it look a little bit better? There you go. So it's that test retest method that's going to allow someone to figure out whether or not they can improve the way in which they're moving. So the idea behind the movement first paradigm is Let's first break down your body and find out what things are hindering us from moving optimally. Got our list, test, retest. Did, are we able to improve upon those things? And then let's see what our movement looks like. Were we able to change it? And then from there, it's just progressive loading. Depending on the person, their injury, things like that. Um, you know, it could be a kettlebell squat for someone. It may be a back squat for someone else. And then progressing up from there to sort of meet that uh, individual's goals.
Yeah, I really like how you're saying to do the squat and then to, you know, do a drill and then to retest versus, you know, doing a stretch and then doing a squat. Like, it's something more concrete. But would you recommend, like, I know people are like, like, it's not something I do with my clients, but do you recommend someone, you know, they foam roll the calf and they stretch the calf, then they do a band immobilization or is it more just, you know, keep it simple, do that squat, do that mobilization, test it, see if it was useful. If not, you know, find something else. I mean, I would definitely do like one thing at a time and then retest. Now, eventually, once you've gotten into the program, you don't need to retest every single time because you sort of know what works. Um, but the way in which I usually would go about it is doing your joint mobility before your soft tissue work for the reason that no amount of soft tissue work is going to alleviate a joint restriction. So you can do all the calf mobilization, all the stretching you want, but it doesn't at the end of the day, that's not going to clear up a restricted joint, uh, you know, in the way in which it's moving, especially at the ankle. And that's a big one for people. If you didn't hear that, stretching alone is not the answer. You need the strength. Exactly. It's and that, key. And that's something too recently, like uh, I know I was going to ask you this towards the end, but like, like a lot of people now are talking about specific stretches and like that target more the joint capsule and the joint surface, such as, you know, FRC. And I was curious on your take on their system for improving joint mobilization and the squat. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't really looked into their system too much, so I really can't speak to it. Um, I will say I know banded joint mobilizations, the theory behind them, especially at the hip, is that we're trying to work on um, mobilizing uh, restrictions in the tough joint capsule. Um, you know, there's a number of different, um, I guess you would call it, different teams out there as far as the way in which they call something and their theory and their approach. But I think most of us are really trying to do the same thing at the end of the day is improve mobility and then improve control in that restricted mobility, you know, where you were before. Um, you know, I don't have a very good understanding of what FRC is, but from my brief uh, dealing with different posts that I have seen out there is that their idea is we need to have control of restricted ranges. Mm -hmm. And if you would think about it a different way, it's a different approach. It's not called the same thing, but if you do, um, if you have limited ankle mobility and it's due to a restriction in ankle mobility, uh, in joint restriction, and you do a banded joint mobilization and then that's all you do. Well, you didn't improve your ability to then use that new range of motion. So someone like that, I would do a similar thing and you're going to improve that mobility and then let's use that new mobility. Let's improve your control within that new motion that you gain, because there's no way that you're going to, have that new motion locked into your body's capabilities if you then don't move through that range of motion afterwards. So um, in anything, physical therapy, strength conditioning, there's a lot of different camps as far as their ideas and the way they structure things and uh, label things. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of us nowadays are, are really trying to say the same thing maybe in different ways. And it's let's have improved range of motion and control in that range of motion. It's good to hear your take on banded mobilizations because I've always wondered if they're legit. Like I know I've used them and they've felt good, but it's cool to know yeah. that they're actually legit. Because one thing we learned in, in in physiotherapy school was those techniques where the therapist would just put their hands manually on the talus mm -hmm. with that little belt strap around them. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's like so like uncomfortable for the therapist. Whereas if we can give someone a tool, they can do that on their own. It's cool to know that it's following similar like science and physiology there. Yeah. I mean, and that's really the end all be all with physical therapy nowadays is 
yes, you can do a self or a, a banded joint, joint mobilization for a person. I mean, that's where the mulligan technique where it started, you know, is a physical therapist doing it to the person. But at the end of the day, that doesn't build empowerment at all. And I want to show someone how they can improve themselves at home as well. And that means a self-banded joint mobilization. Um, and there's times where I still myself will do a joint mobilization for someone. For example, if I have uh, maybe an elderly lady who has a joint restriction at their hip, it's tough to get her down on the ground and do a banded joint mobilization for a lateral pull at her hip. So I may just have her on her back and doing a mobilization herself or myself with the band around her hip. But for the large majority of young athletes, man, get them up, show them abandoned joint mobilization, show them how they can improve themselves because that's what builds empowerment. And the last thing you want as a clinician is to build dependence, that that person has to come see you because at the end of the day, there's other professions that do that. And I don't think that's the right way in which we should uh, go and, and, and work with our patients. Um, but are they legit? They're definitely legit. Uh, and the easiest way to find out is that simple test retest. You know, do a band and joint mobilization, test before, test after. Did you see improvement in your range of motion? Yes. Are you doing anything to lock that in and move well after? Yes. There you go. It's simple. Yeah, I'm definitely going to start trying that out a lot more. So I've been doing them personally with a heavy band. Is there like a, you know, does it need to be super heavy? Like I've used the, you know, the green monster band for my hips. Usually use the, the thin red one when I'm doing shoulder kind of mobility stuff. But is there like, is it in terms of like being effective, is there like a, a minimum resistance that people want to look for? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely got to be somewhat of a thick band because I think if you get too thin, um, you're not going to be able to supply the needed tension and the needed load to actually make a physical change in that tough capsule that surrounds the joint. Um, I think the band that I use often, like you said, like a green, uh, band, I think uh, monster bands by rogue, they have like a two and a half inch thick one. That's black. Um, that works well. Um, and that's going to work well for the ankles and for, uh, the hips, um, for a wrist joint, obviously you're going to want to be just a little bit thin, but the way in which you can know that the band is, uh, in the right place and tensioned enough is whether or not when you're performing the mobility drill, the movement with mobilization, that it takes away that restriction. So for example, if someone's in like a lunge position and they're trying to mobilize the hip because they have a hip impingement, when they drive their knee in into hip internal rotation and adduction and then flex their hips or their chest forward, you know, they regularly would probably get a little bit of that pinch, that block sensation in the front side. They reoccur with that impingement. But if they have that band in the right position, that pinch is no longer there. So that's showing you that you're actually doing what you're trying to do. That's, that's big stuff, really just testing. And that's something I do too yeah. with like a lot of my online clients is when we go on sessions together, you know, I take a look, see how they're doing. And, you know, I'll give them an exercise to see if that actually is working for their body. Whereas a lot of times there's just so many stretches on the internet and you post a lot of great stuff, but people just kind of go through the motions and they're really passive with their, you know, their, their, their movement training practice. And you really have to really just, you know, put the phone away, really start getting intuitive, listening to your body when going through them. Because if you're not using, you know, that to increase your body awareness, then you're not really getting, you know, the main, you know, benefits of it is just to learning how your body moves best. And I feel like that's a lot of reason why people have injuries in and stuff like that is because they're really there's a big disconnect between you know their discomfort and how they move and being able to use that information 
Oh, for sure. I mean, in the same way you would take it for a strength conditioning uh, client or a weightlifter, powerlifter, you can do a squat, you can do a deadlift, or you could do it correctly. So you can do a band and joint mobilization or a stretch or any type of corrective exercise, or you can do them correctly. You know, and it's how you do it. If you're moving with intention and actually getting out of it what you want, that's what's really going to make the lasting impression and actually bring the benefits of what you're trying to do into your life. So I want to talk a bit about back pain here. So are there any, what are some of the, like the best tips you have for back pain for, you know, people who sit all day and they want to, you translate some of those exercises to become an effective warm up in the gym so they can, you know, have peak pain free performance. Yeah. So the first things first is you need to be able to do a proper screening to find out why that person has pain. If you have 10 people again, lined up all sitting down and they all have back pain, they may be for very different reasons. So we can't assume that just because someone has pain while sitting, that it's because of this very specific reason, we're just going to give them this cookie cutter plan. So if you were to Google low back pain when sitting, you're probably not going to find something that's very individualized to your body. So you're probably on the wrong website. The biggest thing is finding and doing a proper screening. Often we can say that uh, back pain comes down to very specific loads, postures, and movements. And through a screening process, you can sort of die or uh, sort of cut out sort of what your body has presumed to be the reason, the trigger for someone's pain. Just generally speaking, oftentimes people who have pain when sitting do so because they are in a slouched position. Now, it's not everyone. Some people just automatically overarch down there. But sometimes people that have back pain when sitting is because they're sitting in a very slouched or flexed back position or flexed back posture. And oftentimes having a little bit of a lumbar roll rolled up, and that could be just a jacket, a sweater. You can go buy a lumbar roll online. Um, putting something back there to support the low back while they are sitting can be very, very helpful. I just sort of reestablishing that neutral spine. Um, and a big thing too, getting up and walking. That's one thing that I know has been a huge help for a lot of my patients is just establishing a walking program and getting up and walking two to three times a day for 10 minutes. I hear a lot of people say that their desk job requires them to sit all day long and they can't ever get up. And I have never heard of a job that doesn't allow you to get up. So in that case, what I'd say, put a big bottle of water on your desk and drink it as much as possible because, hey, every so often you have to get up and go to the bathroom. And that gives you some time just to get up and move and not stay in that static posture all day long. You know, it comes back to that idea. Is sitting bad? I don't think it's bad. Is sitting all day bad? Potentially, you know, and we're actually sitting in that sustained posture. Just like the same thing, is standing bad? Standing sometimes a little bit better than sitting because what a standing, uh, standing does, or a standing desk, for example, is it just gives you the option to move a little bit. Throwing your foot up here, you're standing on one foot, you're moving around, you're not in this just static posture all day long. So the biggest thing is movement is medicine. Get up, move, go take a walk. Um, that's going to be key. And then, you know, working with the physical therapist, a physiotherapist that understands how to screen your body and uncover what is your individual reason for having back pain, because that's going to allow you to get a tailored rehab program for what you're experiencing. So uh, could you give us, could you give us an example of, you know, what your, your morning routine would be like, or when you try to, you know, get your daily movement and mobility and the size from your training that you found to be effective for me personally, I try to, you know, 
the second my feet hit the floor, I like to move, but I'm curious what your kind of routine is like to get your day going. Cause you know, we all wake up and we're sore in the back and <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess my daily routine, I'm usually waking up at a little after six. Uh, I let the dog out, feed the dog, make some, uh, make some breakfast, eggs, bacon, and whole milk every morning. And then uh, usually I'm messaging people back on direct message for about 45 minutes or so while I'm eating. And then uh, off to work, I see patients from 7.30 till about noon. And then um, I work out um, for about an hour, hour and a half every single day. And then see patients in the afternoon. And the big thing that I'm doing is I'm always up and moving. You know, I'm showing a patient how to do this, showing a patient how to do that, doing movements with them. So um, trying not to sit down. Uh, I think if I sit down for more than like, three hours at a time like my back starts to ache a little bit so i'm always trying to be up and moving yeah that's that's big especially for those listening like it's someone i'm sure you can squat with like 500 pounds or something and even <laughs> even even sitting three hours like no one is invincible you just gotta move because you, you're just gonna get sore so it's just about you know programming that in so if you were to do some mobility work would it primarily not be like a daily thing but would it just be as your warm-up yeah, I mean, I probably do, and it's specific to what I'm training that day, um, maybe about 10 minutes, you know, before I'm training. Um, sit in a deep squat, uh, you know, I like a deep goblet squat where I can drive my knees over my toes. Um, I'm a huge fan of like the hip airplane, really open those hips up, maybe a little thoracic spine mobility work, um, and then get under the barbell. My big thing is I, I don't want people to be warming up for 45 minutes before they uh, work out if they have to, it probably means they're not moving well enough throughout their day. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it sort of depends on the day and what I need having different tools in the toolbox is key. And that's why we have, you know, things, you know, I don't foam roll every day, but there's days if I get out and my adductors are just fried, you know, throw foam rolling around them for a minute or two minutes, you feel a lot better right afterwards. So, um, I think the big thing I, I try to get across to people is, Mobility work is not just something you do for like 10, 15 minutes at a time. You should be moving well throughout your day. And if you're able to sit in a deep squat a few times throughout the day, it's really going to cut down on that need to do a lot of pure mobility work. Because not everyone has a half an hour every single day on top of their workout to actually do mobility work. But if they can move well throughout their day, I think that really cuts down on that need. Yeah, that's a, a big reason why I have a lot of people, you know, I'm recommending to do a lot of these exercises I've created that people can do in their chair because that way, you know, if you keep your body, you know, primed for, throughout the day and, you know, you get off work, obviously people work from home now, but if you get off work at six, like you can't go to the gym, you know, get there 6.30, warm up till seven and then, mm -hmm. and then you just got it. But if you're keeping your body moving all day long, you're not going to need as much work to, you know, get it loosened, to get it going and to get really fired up. That's definitely, a big thing. Definitely. Like I used to, when I had shoulder pain, I used to warm up for like 45 minutes of stretching Damn. another 30 afterwards. I'm like, you know, this is what I have to do. If I want to do muscle ups today, or if I want to feel good is I was just literally always on the mat. Like I lived on the mat at the gym and no one else would go on it. Yeah. I, I would. And I have people that tell me that too. They're like, Oh, I have to warm up for like 45 minutes in order to do this. And I'm like, if that's the case, you're not preparing your body ahead of time to do what you're trying to do you're missing out on something. You need to spend more time doing this or more time moving throughout the day because 45 minutes, there's a lot of stuff you could be doing at that time training wise um, in preparing your body doesn't just, I mean, it shouldn't take that long to be able to get up, to be able to move well. 
Um, and sometimes that means like, hey, the program that we're on right now, maybe we need to cut back a little bit on certain things, tailor things up a little bit. Uh, you know, one day during the week, instead of training hard, maybe that's a regeneration day and a movement-based day. Um, I had a weightlifter the other day and uh, I looked at her warm-up, and it was literally like an hour's worth of stuff. And half of it was stuff that was redundant. It's just over and over again. All right, we already did this. We already did this. You're doing this here. So sometimes working with a strength coach, working with a physical therapist, and, and screening your body to undercover, you know, uncover what are your individual weak links? What does your body need to move optimally? Again, understand movement first, exercise second. And once you have your list of things that you need to work on, and again, that may change next month. That may change next year. If your warm-ups right now look the, like the exact same warm-ups you did five years ago, there may be something wrong. You, know, you may not have addressed something throughout the five years. But understanding that the movement screen prepares you to understand what your body needs to focus on in order to warm up well and to move well before you start loading. And that often doesn't take 45 minutes worth of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's true. Like, uh, you don't want it to be redundant because then you're just wasting time and you just want to, you know, I guess for you, you like to live in the gym, but a lot of people just want to kind of get in, get out and get it done. Yeah, exactly. And in, in those instances, like, Hey, I understand that you don't want to be at the gym for three hours. Cool. Let's understand. Here's two to things, two, three things that you can do. It's going to take you five minutes. And in doing that, you're going to have a much better workout. You're going to be moving better. Your body's going to tolerate the loads you place on it better. So you're going to be able to have a great workout, accomplish what you want to accomplish, but have less risk for injury. And that's what it's all about because you do get the other end of the spectrum of people that are like, I don't have time to warm up. I need to go and do this. I need to work out. Um, I need to get in, get done. You know, uh, you need to be able to warm up and prime your body well. One thing that I've taught people to kind of get over that mindset hump of, you know, not wanting to warm up or believing they don't have time. It's yeah. just, you know, the second you go in, just be like, that's the workout. Just shift your mindset and the warm up is the workout. And then it, then it's, it's so much easier just to get through it. If you program that into, you know, your hour or whatever, that's when the workout starts. It's not when you do your first set under the bar, but the warm up is, is the workout. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's all about finding out what that person needs because one person's warm-up won't look like the other person's. You have to tailor it to what your body needs. So it's interesting. I noticed since you began your page and since Instagram's been growing so much, like there's been a rise in the amount of, you know, physical therapists that are strength coaches and well-versed as strength coaches. So as a future physio myself, like, can you tell the listeners, you know, why being able to do both is so important? Because I feel like there's so many physios that I've gone to when I, you know, got injured, couldn't really get on my level and relate to me. Oh man, it's huge. I think being a strength and conditioning professional first, before I got into physical therapy was huge. I mean, I started coaching weightlifting and working with uh, clients as, you know, personal training and everything like that well before I ever got into physical therapy. And I think it, it allows you to understand the body from a healthy performance perspective first, because too often we get physical therapists, physios, that they get these athletes in and then they're like, okay, let's do these one pound exercises for 10 weeks and they don't understand load progression and plyometric progression. You know, yes, there's a time and a place for low load exercises, very easy exercises, especially with someone's brand new often injury. 
but you have to understand that higher end of the paradigm if you really want to get an athlete or just a human being in general back to being able to do what they're capable of doing. And that's what the strength and conditioning community is great at is taking a healthy athlete and making them reach their athletic um, you know, potential. So understanding and being able to work with great athletes and improving strength and power and agility, those things translate very well into physical therapy. You just have to understand and have come with the basics of the fundamentals of physical therapy and preparing an athlete or a patient just in general to be able to do those things. So I think when you can mesh those two together, you're going to find so many, so many great things that are going to be uh, coming out of, in the world of physical therapy and rehabilitation in the future, because we have people that can speak both languages. Yeah, I think it's going to be huge. And it's like something like I'm already starting to like, like see with a lot of like, like people in the industry is that like you're getting more like because social media is such a big thing, you're getting more physios who are actually, you know, getting into strength training themselves. And I think it's really going to make it, you know, the next wave where people like everyone is just focusing on, you know, living that lifestyle where they they're walking their walk. And I think it's big because you don't like yeah. it was so discouraging to be injured to go to someone you're like, oh, yeah, and to hear that I shouldn't be working front lever anymore. Muscle ups because they're not or dips because dips are bad for my shoulder. And I was like afraid for years. And then I found like a like a another someone else who was a former gymnast. But so I feel like you got to like be able to just talk with them. Oh, for sure. When I was in physical therapy school, I'm preparing for the, uh, this is back in 2011. I was preparing for the 2011 U S nationals and Olympic weightlifting. And in doing so I was doing like two a day training four times a week, just really trying to put a lot of volume and a lot of work to be able to perform at my best. Cause it was the first U S nationals I ever went to and doing so I developed tendinopathy. What I thought was tendinopathy at the time. And I went to one of my professors and I'm like, Hey, like my knee's killing me. I think I am dealing with, you know, patellar tendinitis. You know what he told me? He said, well, how often are you squatting? I said, well, you know, five times a week right now. And then pulling two days, he goes, you need to stop lifting so much. That was his advice to me. And I'm like, that's horrible advice. Just stop lifting so much, you know? And it's because there's this complete disconnect between the physical therapy world, traditional physical therapy world and the athletic strength conditioning world. And we don't know how to speak each other's languages. And in doing so, we don't understand the demands at which the body should be capable of performing and what we can do to maintain that quality of performance and quality of training and just tweak a few things. Looking back now, I would have done some testing. I would have understood, well, why is that pain there? Maybe there's some different exercises we can put into the training program. Maybe it's something we need to add if it's truly tendinopathy, some Spanish squats too, because research has shown that five sets of 45 seconds Spanish squats have been shown to decrease patellar tendinopathy directly after for in-season volleyball players for extended times during their season. You know, there's so many different things you can do, but just to tell someone don't squat is a cop-out that I think a lot of physical therapists early on that didn't understand the demands of training, you know, they would say things like that, you know, just like I get athletes all the time and they have horrible back pain and they go to their doctor and their doctor says, you're deadlifting way too much. You probably should not deadlift ever again. Your back looks horrible. That's a horrible thing to tell someone, you know, how about we help them build resiliency to perform what they want to do and screen their body and find what's, you know, at fault and what exercises we need to do to work on these weak links, to tweak the way in which they're moving, to allow them to move pain-free, to build capacity, to perform what they want to do. You know, we need to be able to have that conversation and have that continuum of treatment to where, yes, we're treating that athlete that's post-op, 
yes, we're treating that athlete that, you know, is directly off an injury and can't walk, but we also are treating them eight weeks out and we're treating them also 26 weeks out when they're able to jump over a hurdle and perform a clean and jerk with 80% of their prior weight, you know, things like that. We have to be able to understand that entire continuum of treatment and bridge the gap between strength and conditioning and physical therapy. If we want to really allow uh, patients, I think to succeed in the end. Absolutely. I love your, your take on that and definitely going to keep sharing that forward. I've got a, a question here to finish off for you. So yeah. where do you see squat university, you know, and then, and your, and your business in the next five years or so? Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing right now. Um, I love seeing patients. I mean, I'm still working as a full-time physical therapist. So I see patients 40 days a week. I love seeing patients. I don't ever want to stop and just travel and teach because while teaching is great and I love doing seminars and things like that, I always want to be a practitioner of what I do. And there's never a week or a month that goes by that I don't learn something new. So I still have that mindset that I don't know what I don't know. And if I look back at the way in which I treated patients five years ago, I feel like I've come, you know, heading forward, you know, more into a better place. Um, and I'm excited to see where I'm at five years from now in the type of information I can continue giving to people um, throughout different social media um, platforms. I uh, am about to release my second book, uh, which is going to be called Rebuilding Milo, and that's going to drop in January 2021. And that is going to be a much bigger book than my first book, which was the Squat Bible. It was all about squat technique, how to break down and screen your body to find deficits, mobility, stability, things that hamper you from performing great looking technique and ways in which you can then individualize your corrective exercises to perform a great looking squat. It's very small, 128 pages. Well, the second book's going to be like 480 pages and is wow. basically my uh, entire mindset and uh, capabilities as a sports physical therapist written for any single person that could walk into a weight room. And it's broken down by injury. So one chapter is back pain. And it just shows you, you know, how does back injury occur? Uh, how do you screen your body the way on which I would screen you? How do you figure out why you have back pain? What's the first steps to take to get you out of pain? How do you build resiliency to get you back to lifting? So uh, it's going to be a very, very big book. But basically, my version of physical therapy for every single person out there. I'm look, really looking forward to that. Let us know when there's a pre-order link. Let the it's actually available right now. Yeah, it's awesome. already out. So yeah, if you search on Amazon.com and just search Rebuilding Milo, the pre-order link is already up. That's sweet. And I, where else can people connect with you? I know you got the YouTube channel, Squat University, Instagram, squatuniversity.com. I think we got it all there. And also you're, you have your own podcast. My own podcast, Facebook. If you're on TikTok, Squat University on TikTok. I'm uh, every social media platform you can think of. Awesome. Do you have any last tips before just kind of biggest takeaway message here? Yeah. I mean, biggest takeaway message is move well first before you're lifting heavy weight. In this, uh, this lifting game that we're in, no matter what your athletic pursuits are, if you're a weightlifter, powerlifter, crossfitter competitively, or you just want to go to the gym just to feel good, to feel healthy, to live a better life, move well first before you're lifting heavy weights. Because this is a marathon, even though it's lifting it's a marathon. You're not going to win it today or win it tomorrow. And if you take that approach and you make small incremental 
uh, improvements in the way in which you're moving. It's small incremental improvements in how much weight's on the bar, no matter what you're typing, uh, you're trying to lift. You're going to see great looking results. You're going to stay free of injury and you're going to be able to live the life that you want. Love it. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to you're have very you. very welcome. Looking forward to maybe we can do a YouTube collabs one of these days. That'd be, That'd be awesome. awesome. Yeah, for sure, man. Awesome.